Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Friday, September 16th. We'll begin today acknowledging the new development last night in the classified documents investigation into former President Trump, the naming of a special master who both Trump and the Justice Department actually agreed on. But we'll also spend time in this segment looking at two of the things the Justice Department is looking at themselves regarding January 6th, using the big lie about a stolen election as a fundraising vehicle and trying to send fake electors to the Electoral College, that is, electors who would have been for Trump from states that were won by Biden. The Justice Department has reportedly issued about 40 subpoenas already this month to people in Trump's orbit, many of which were about possible crimes related to those aspects. And we'll touch on the apparent search of the phone belonging to prominent Trump supporter, Mike Lindell, you know, the My Pillow guy, that's in connection with a case of possible election machine tampering in Colorado, as reported by CNN. And with us now is the reporter who wrote that story based on subpoena documents they obtained, CNN national security correspondent Zachary Cohen. Zachary, thanks for coming on today. Welcome to WNYC. Hey, good morning. I appreciate you having me. Let's start with the new things, and one is your story about this investigation into possible election machine tampering in Colorado as part of the effort to subvert the 2020 election. Who is investigating what? Yeah, so our reporting is, um, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, um, Mike Wendell, the MyPillow CEO, also a prominent Trump supporter and, um, you know, purveyor of a lot of baseless claims about election fraud. He had his cell phone seized by the FBI um, this week. And these documents, the subpoena documents that we've obtained and that, uh, you know, he has posted online since then um, really do show kind of the scope of this Justice Department um, federal investigation into election tampering into a security breach at an elections office in Mesa County, Colorado. Um, You know, the subpoena really does seem to show that the focus of the investigation, at least now, does center around what happened in Mesa County. But you know, obviously the seizure of Mike Wendell's phone. And last night we reported that one of the other seven individuals who are listed as a uh, subject in the investigation by the Justice Department also had their cell phone seized. So, you know, it is a broader investigation with a broader scope. And, you know, of the seven people that were um, listed as subjects, a few of them were also involved in similar incidents in other states too. So it does sort of raise that question of whether or not, you um, you know, the Justice Department will or is looking at any sort of a possible connection that there is no, we don't have the reporting now to say that they are or aren't. So. Mesa County, Colorado, that's the Grand Junction area in the western part of the state, for those of you who know Colorado, or we could just call it the heart of Lauren Boebert's district. Lauren Boebert, sort of the Marjorie Taylor Greene of the West. It's pretty sparsely populated there, though, and it was a blue state, not much of a swing state, Colorado, in 2020. So why did people possibly mess around with election machines there, and, and how exactly? Right, that, and that's an interesting thing, a theme that we, we've seen in some of these other incidents as well, that, um, you know, they're, ha- they're happening in these heavily Republican, um, you know, pretty deep red counties where um, local election workers are really getting sort of convinced or getting, um, you know, recruited to 
essentially provide access to election systems and to voting systems in these election offices that only they are supposed to have access to. And they're letting outsiders come in and in some cases, you know, allegedly stick a USB drive in there, make a forensic copy of the system. So um, it, it is pretty interesting to see how this has sort of developed into a strategy almost um, by this group of individuals. Um, you know, they're, they're recruiting of local election, sympathetic election workers to get access to these voting systems is um, something we're seeing across the country right now. Throughout the country, there are similar investigations in other states about trying to access voting machine data after the election? There are. Um, in Michigan, for example, there's um, state prosecutors are looking into a series of similar breaches where um, outside individuals gained access to voting systems in various counties there. Um, and, you know, including the uh, current Trump-backed uh, candidate for attorney general is among those who's been named by the current um, attorney general as a target in that criminal investigation. Now, that's a state level investigation versus mm -hmm. there's also a state level investigation in Colorado, but in, but a federal one there too. So, but there is a sort of a parallel there between um, what the various investigators are looking at. So you're saying they have found possible election fraud, which is what Trump is always claiming, but it was in support of him? Well, I think... What you're seeing is that they're investigating a series of incidents where, you know, individuals are the reason that they're trying to get access to these systems is to, you know, try to prove their unfounded theories about election fraud. Right. That's the that's sort of the underlying ah. reason um, why they want to get access to it. Now, obviously, nobody has proven any of the various claims about voting systems and about um, vulnerabilities that have been uh, exploited in the 2020 election. Nothing changed the outcome, but that sort of is the root cause of what we're seeing there. And what, before we move on to other aspects of the investigations now going on, what does the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, have to do with that in Colorado? He's not suspected of anything himself, you said. Well, that's a great question. So Mike Wendell is listed in his own subpoena as a subject of the federal investigation in Colorado. Um, he, it's really unclear how he fits in completely, but we have in our story some reporting about how Mike Wendell himself has said that he paid um, some of the other individuals named to analyze voting data. Um, he has also been, you know, he's a well-known um, sort of purveyor of these various claims and that he does have connections to a lot of different individuals that were involved in this particular incident. Now, we're going to have to wait and see, one, whether investigators turn up anything that amounts to a crime. We, we know which, which crimes they're looking at now based on the subpoena document. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to have to wait and see what they turn up as far as Michael Wendell's direct involvement in what happened. All right. Now let's turn to the special master named last night by the judge in the classified documents investigation. The special master is federal judge Raymond Deary, who is based here where I am in New York. I see he was proposed by Trump, but was acceptable to the Justice Department. And considering that part of Trump's game is to question every authority as biased against him, how did they actually come up with a person who could be acceptable to the Justice Department to fairly conduct this review? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it speaks a lot to this process, and it speaks a lot to, um, you know, the Justice Department wanting to move forward in this process um, really as quickly as possible, it seems. But, um, you know, as you said, the judge is um, Raymond Deary. Um, he was put forward by the Trump team for the special master role. And again, we're going to have to 
kind of see how he handles this process going forward. But, um, you know, there is a sense of urgency, it does seem, on the DOJ side. On the DOJ side, does that mean that they may have acquiesced to have somebody be the special master who they think might actually be biased in favor of Trump? I, I, I don't have any reporting to back that up, but, you know, we have seen throughout this process that there's been a theme of the Justice Department, um, you know, wants to move forward and wants to um, kind of get this wrapped up. What's the rush, by the way, if they get this wrapped up at the end of 2022 or if they get this wrapped up in April of 2023? I mean, what's the difference? Well, I think the urgency is more built around this idea of making sure that all the um, documents are accounted for, that everything um, is squared away on that end rather than getting the actual investigation itself um, sorted out. But, you know, we're going to have to see. It's, there's going to be a process that plays out here. Um, Raymond Deary um, is, he served in a role as a FISA judge. He was one of the judges who actually approved one of the Justice Department's requests to surveil former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page um, huh. as part of the Russia investigation in 2016 election interference. So, you know, Deary, it's interesting how he fits into this process. But, um, you know, he's going to have a lot of decisions to make and he's going to have to um, face a lot of pressure from both sides. So he looks to you as a reporter on national security, like more or less a straight shooter? You know, again, I think the context always matters and the sort of you know, how it's going to really just depend on how he handles this unique situation. Um, you know, I always reserve judgment on that, but, um, you know, we're going to have to take it as it comes and obviously just see how it plays out. And you said the urgency on the part of the Justice Department is in part because there is classified information there, presumably, including very sensitive classified information, and they want to do a, a harm assessment, I guess. But the other development last night is that the judge in the case also said until the special master finishes his review, um, and he has until the end of November, I believe, the Justice Department cannot continue to look at the documents labeled classified for possible national security issues. And the Justice Department is alarmed by that because of possible national security implications in the case, obviously. So so do you know what the judge thought was more important than looking at that potential for national security harm quickly? You know, again, that's a great question. But and like you said, though, there, the intelligence community review of the documents has been paused since last week when the judge um, ordered that the criminal investigation stop, you know, for the moment. Right. And. The DOJ has argued that those two reviews cannot be separated and plans to appeal that decision. But, you know, it was it was the latest example of this judge who was nominated by Trump in 2020, showing skepticism of the Justice Department's handling of records. It says it should be in the government's hands because they own them. Um, So, you know, the the judge's motivations and the judge's decision making, um, that's something, you know, I don't have direct insight into. But when you look at kind of the sequence of decisions that have been made and this one in particular, um, it does open a window into kind of, you know, why certain things are happening um, on the judge's end and why she's and, deciding not to separate those two things. And the judge, said, the judge said whether or not the documents are actually classified or just marked classified is a matter of dispute in the case, even right. though, as I understand it, Trump's lawyers are not actually claiming in court that he declassified them. But still, the judge is 
stating that whether the documents are actually classified or just marked classified is a matter of dispute in the case. And that's why she's just not letting the Justice Department look at them under the assumption that they're classified. Do I have that right? I, I think so. And, and it's interesting because I've seen from a few legal experts who um, kind of work in this space that that is a distinction that they have never seen a judge make before um, mm. in this particular kind of yeah. situation. So, you know, it remains to be seen kind of how this is going to play out and how the decision making will affect what comes next. But um, it is an interesting distinction that she made between the marking classification and the classification itself, even though, like you said, too, the um, the Trump team isn't really argue, making that case themselves. So I guess Trump's defense sounds like kind of a classic criminal defense attorney pyramid. You know, my client didn't do it. If he did do it, it wasn't a crime. If it was a crime, he didn't know it was a crime. If he knew it was a crime, it's okay because nobody got hurt. But if somebody did get hurt, it's unfair that you're singling my client out for this. You're just out to get him. Something like that. Right. Right. That, um, you know, that does seem to be tracking along with um, kind of how it's played out so far. Well, let's talk about the investigation into so-called fake electors. What does the term fake electors, which we've been hearing increasingly in the news, refer to? Yeah, fake electors refers to this group of individuals from um, that were organized by the Trump campaign in seven key battleground states that Trump had actually lost. You had, um, you know, the Trump campaign organized these folks together and had them gather at their various state houses on a key day where each state would certify the, their election results um, and essentially put out, uh, put forward the slate of electors for whichever candidate won that state. So the that list of electors would be sent up to, to Congress and to the National Archives so that when Congress certified um, the outcome, the electors are, repre are representing their various states and the candidate chosen by that state. But what happened is um, in December 2020, the Trump campaign organized their own group of Trump electors and had them sign official certificates stating that they were the duly elected electors from that state representing Donald Trump. And uh, they sent that certificate to the National Archives and to Congress as if Trump had won the state when he really hadn't. And so that is really what sort of set off and, and was really the first issue that was really seriously under examination by the Justice Department and by you know, criminal prosecutors in Georgia. They're looking specifically at efforts to influence and overturn the election results there because essentially they're being accused of being fraudulent electors, like claiming to be duly elected electors on behalf of Donald Trump when in fact they were not. So what's the possible crime here? I mean, if Trump wants to claim that people who support him should be going to the Electoral College from states where Biden was certified as the winner, it may be ham-handed and obnoxious, but they weren't actually going to get counted for Trump in the Electoral College, I presume. So why might this be a crime rather than a stunt? So it's connected to the effort um, to have Mike Pence essentially throw out the electoral results. You know, what we learned this week, I think, is really important because it, it addresses your question, I think, where um, the Justice Department's investigation touches nearly every aspect of former President Trump's efforts to overturn his 2020 election law. So that includes the fake electors plot, but it, it's important because it fits within efforts to push baseless election fraud claims and how the money flowed to support these various efforts. And the New York Times says, and maybe this is your reporting too, I know you had aspects of, of this story early as well, 
that 20 subpoenas were sent out this month uh, related to the fake elector scheme, and two people close to Trump reportedly had their phones seized with search warrants approved by a court in conjunction with the fake elector scheme investigation. Who had their phones seized? Right. Well, we know one of those individuals was um, a man named Boris Epstein. He's um, still a close aide to uh, the former president. He, and as, as I think we've reported in the Times and others have reported um, in the past, he was involved in efforts to organize these electors from various states. And um, I, th- I think the proximity of um, Epstein to the former president even now is an interesting thing to note, um, considering that they did seize his phone. Um, and, you know, it, it speaks to where this investigation is and where it may be heading. Um, but it certainly is a sign that things are intensifying and that um, we have a better sense now of what the DOJ is looking at um, in a holistic way. And let's go on to another reason the Justice Department reportedly issued 40 more subpoenas this month. Some of Trump's fundraising based on the stolen election claim, even though it's a lie for which there's no evidence that they can point to, uh, despite how hard the Trump people have tried to find any, despite no basis for the claim, they've been using it to solicit money from supporters. Zachary, how and why is the Justice Department investigating that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, as you mentioned, some of these um, recent batch of subpoenas went out to uh, some pretty high profile names um, in both Trump's political fundraising um area and but all and his former campaign operation one of them is bill stepian his former campaign manager um and the other one was another notable name was sean billman who worked for trump's 2020 campaign as his chief financial officer so as you said they want to see it's clear that the justice department is looking into how the money flowed um not only flowed to support and pay for um these various efforts to overturn the election but also how it was used as a fundraising vehicle and, and, you know, politicians exaggerate and walk up to the line of saying things that aren't true, probably even lie, uh, you know, or at least imply that things aren't true, maybe are true, in order to inflame their bases and raise money off that pretty often. What would mm-hmm. make that kind of thing a crime? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a good question. And, you know, I think at its basic level, it's, um, you know, you're looking into various elements of fraud, but you're also looking at it, as we were talking about earlier, within the bigger context of the effort to overturn the election, right? It's it's another lane in which, um, or, or another part of this bigger picture that the Justice Department is trying to put together. That's really the case the January 6th committee has been trying to make, is that this is all connected, right? This is all part of the same, of a broader picture that um, stems from trying to overturn the election, and it um, ultimately flowed into and created as they argue, caused violence on January 6th. One more thing before you go. It looks like the president who was impeached for inciting violence continues to either incite more violence or wants to make it look like he's inciting violence with maybe just enough plausible deniability for legal purposes, but dog whistling to his most Civil War-ready supporters. Trump said this yesterday in a radio interview with conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt about the prospect that he'll get indicted for one of these potential crimes. If it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps 
we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems. Big problems. You know that the legacy media will say you're attempting to incite violence with that statement. How do you respond to what will inevitably... That's not, a, that's not inciting. I'm just saying what my opinion is. I don't think the people of this country would stand for it. So, I guess we count as legacy media, but I think there's a responsibility to ask a question when a former president, in whose name there have been riots before, uh, says that if he's indicted by the actual United States justice system, that there would be, quote, problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. You know, it, it smacks of proud boys stand back and stand by, wink, wink, and then they believe they were called to arms by Trump for January 6th. Do you, do you think he's, he's just trying to bait people to talk about it? We're talking about it. Um, (laughs) But or do you think he's really so far gone that he wants riots in his name if he is indicted for a crime? So I I would just point to a video, actually, that the January 6th committee tweeted out yesterday um, from January 6th. And they've shown this video before, but it it fits in well with your question. It's a video of um, I can't remember if it's Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or both, but yeah, they're it was on the, Oath Keepers, in, I'm pretty sure. I saw it. Right, inside the Capitol. And it's it's in real time reacting to um, what Trump was tweeting at that time and about the Capitol Police. And they they really read between the lines of what Trump is saying and not saying and interpret that in the video itself as essentially orders, right? I mean, you can see them base their decision-making and base what they're saying in that moment on what their interpretation of what Trump was saying is. Zachary Cohen, national security correspondent for CNN. Thanks so much. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.